astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. On this episode, I was joined by Benabel Wen, a creator whose offerings in tarot, the I Ching, and the occult have been sources of major inspiration in my life, and it was a dream fulfilled to get to have her on this podcast. Benabel created, illustrated, and authored my favorite ever tarot deck, The Spirit Keeper's Tarot, which if you know, you know why it's a favorite. This episode is coming out in time for you to pre-order the next print run of the deck, and I'm not a sponsor, just a fan. I love this deck because it opened the door to the I Ching for me, which is significant, because every card is a multifaceted universe in of itself that I couldn't even memorize, but I get to meet it anew every time I pull a card. And because the deck is alive, in a way it's become a friend and a part of the mythic weaving of my life. In this conversation, we discuss the process of creating the Spirit Keeper's Tarot, the nature of metaphysical power, the I Ching, and several hexagrams and cards in particular the cards being the Tower, Eight of Swords, Five of Cups, Ten of Cups, and Seven of Pentacles. Benabel also helped me realize through the synchronicity of some of the hexagrams and cards I mentioned and their associations that I apparently have a relationship to Thunder more than I thought. Kind of magical because at the time of recording and publishing this conversation, I'm living in Peru for a little bit before I return to the States. And I experience more lightning and thunder in the Andes here than anywhere else I've ever lived. It's currently raining and I've seen a few lightning strikes um, tonight and also heard thunder tonight as well. Benabel Wen is the author of Holistic Tarot and the Tao of Craft. Her third book, I Ching, The Oracle, is forthcoming in June of this year. She is also the creator of the Spirit Keepers Tarot. Here's our conversation. Hi everyone, I'm here with Benabel Wen, which is so exciting. I've been connecting with Benabel's work, um, with your work on the tarot and the I Ching for some time now, and I've really wanted to have you on this podcast for a bit. So thank you so much for being here. Hi, Sabrina. I'm definitely excited to be here. So to start out, I would love to know um, like an early experience of magic or mysticism that you've had that you would like to share with us. You know, it's funny. There's when I say there's so many, it's not that there's so many. It's more just like, how do you pick one that is more important than the others? I think every single one of those, especially when you realize as soon as you have that reflection moment that this is not ordinary, you know, it has an impact on you. Um, I think maybe not really magic, but the one that I, I think of the most is when I realized that seeing auras wasn't something that was ordinary. And I was very fortunate to have a mom that was very open-minded and very, um, 
just very, I guess, encouraging of anything that her children were experiencing. And she also had a lot of social connections. So she knew a subject matter expert for everything. And I think once she realized I was seeing auras and I didn't know what it was, she connected me with some, I remember a Sufu, a, a master teacher who explained to me what it was and how, how I was seeing it and what it meant and things like that. So I think that was a memorable moment when I realized that that was a thing with the capital T. That's really cool that your mom knew all these subject matter experts, because when I'm connecting with the Spirit Keepers Tarot, for example, it's like a portal with all of these like side doors and magical universes. Um, It's so vast. Um, I'm so glad you got that from it. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I was hoping to have exactly what you just said, many different gateways, pathways and channels to that connects every part of the entire metaphysical world. Yeah, it's literally my favorite deck of all time. It's a prized possession. It's this beautiful work of art. Um, It's incredibly layered and multicultural. And you produce the art, the writing, this beautiful guidebook that goes along with it. And the cards are ensouled. Like they have an energy. Like I really feel a connection to each of the cards. Um, and that was also your intention, if I remember correctly, to install them. So can you tell us about this process of making the deck in general and what your prayer and vision was? I think to be fair, every tarot deck done by the art, you know, with the artist's hand is very prevalent, right? I think to be fair, everything, when you have a work that is very obvious that it's a direct production by a single artist, it's going to have that, you know, you can feel it in so many different decks. In terms of what I did, one, I did it in a very small, a short period of time, like it was very concentrated. I think that one helps. I think even as an artist or a writer, you know, if it's a span over a large period of time, it can sometimes feel diluted. And if not diluted, it's just very hard to keep up that momentum and that intensity. So for the project, I did it in a very short, concentrated amount of time. So I could really keep up, you know, that generated momentum and intensity. Um, just like the Spirit Keepers Tarot, where it's multi-level and multifaceted, I really thought about every aspect of my lifestyle during the time that I was working on the artwork. So it was waking up at the hour of sunrise and in vacations, even my diet, how I was eating, my lifestyle. And I really tried to be mindful of my thoughts and my emotions. And anytime I felt too extreme or access in one direction or another in terms of emotions, I tried to reel that back into center. And so in terms of prayers as well, invocations of um, whoever in my orbit would be willing to help in that particular card or in that particular culture, making sure I was guided to the right resources as well, knowing what my own knowledge limitations were and finding the guides, both spirit and, and real life to help me with that. So every aspect of the creation was intentional and to try to honor every single spirit and, you know, a ruling uh, Lord over every single card aspect. Wow. That's beautiful to hear about what was going on in terms of organizing your lifestyle around the project and like that being such an all encompassing work. Um, And I really feel it through the cards. It's a really like potent experience every time I connect with it. 
I'm so glad. And I also tried very hard to make sure that, because I, I do have a lot of strong religious views. I say religious only because, you know, not everyone shares the same views and it's not provable by science, right? But I do believe that, you know, you can unintentionally invite different types of energies that can do things unintentional to, you know, whatever project you're working on that can, um, you know, kind of bring down the vibration a little bit or, or lower the frequency, anything like that. And so that's something I was extremely mindful of, just making sure that I had these spiritual guardrails in place, that I was fortified and protected and that I was making sure I was, it sounds so fluffy, but to make sure whoever's using my deck is kept safe. That was very important to me. Wow. Yeah. I imagine because all of the cards are portals and even just like having a, you know, like pulling the tower for the day or something. It's like, that's going to be quite a day. Like I'll find the tower show up in some way. And so I can imagine that, you know, when we're working on a project that is so archetypal or about a particular frequency that it could find a way to enter our lives. And so that you had a way to create some boundary as you were going through the whole arcana. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, funny that you bring up the tower. I mean, it is one of those cards that I, I think we'd be lying to ourselves. If we said we weren't intimidated anytime the tower card shows up in a reading, right? But something that I like that I hope is um, that we're reminded of in that deck and also just in general is that like, it's almost like saying without blame, like, hey, you brought this on because this is actually something you wanted. There was something about your pre-existing situation that actually wasn't working for you. And deep down, you knew it wasn't working. So this is sort of like that inner self saying, okay, well, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it for you. Right. And just kind of breaking down these things or dogma that was limiting you. And so now that you've broken down what were limitations, now you can actually rebuild in a way that's even more spiritually ascended. So there is that, I mean, not to look at everything in a light manner, but I do think that there is that greater message to the tower that I really love. I appreciate that. I've always felt like when I'm tuning into this deck that it can really guide me firmly through difficult experiences. It doesn't sugarcoat, but it also does open up space for deeper reflection that can lead to more optimism or appreciation of the experience. Yeah, I hope so. Were there any cards in particular that like you feel the most deeply connected to? Um, well, Guan Yin, um, Guan Yin, the god or goddess Bodhisattva of mercy, and um, the in the healer card, key seventeen, the tarot star card. I think that um, personal biases, right? So I think that for me, I'm connected to Matsu in the Ten of Cups. She's considered a Taoist or folk goddess of the seas, but she was a protege or she's closely linked to Kuan Yin, but she's very, very Taiwanese. You know, not even many Chinese, mainland Chinese people know of this divinity. So she's very much a South Pacific goddess. And because um, that's where I'm from, these two, I think I feel very culturally connected to. Mm, beautiful. And I love those cards too. Thank you. So my experience with the deck, the spirit keepers tarot, and also your translation of the I Ching, um, and what I've learned from you about shadow work and the tarot too, there's this gravi gravity and potency to it. And I'm also able to connect with your cards, like on a daily basis, such as in like a daily poll, but they have guided me through crisis or through really big life events. And so I feel this powerful, like multidimensional quality in this deck. And I wanted to ask you inspired by that, 
um, how you perceive power itself, right? And this process of an individual opening to hold more of their own power. That's a big question. Um, well, I guess I'll start with a very, um, not a looked up definition of power, but just sort of how I perceive power as a lay person. You know, power is just having the capability, having the capacity and resources or access to it, physical or metaphysical, to be able to do what you want to do. A very, very simple definition. That's power, right? A good way to, I guess, conceptualize metaphysical power is to use metaphors. And I use the metaphor of nutrition, diet, food, right? How do you make sure your body is physically strong and capable enough to do the things that you want your physical body to do? And you just mirror that in terms of metaphysics. And just like food, I think what you eat can have a very strong impact on how that power is manifested. And so, you know, you want to be mindful of where you source your power. I think just because it's powerful and just because it may, allows you to do the thing that you want to do in the immediate sense, in terms of long-term effects, it might not be the best for you. And so I would one, be very mindful of where you're sourcing your power. Two that I really think about for myself, one is beneficence. And there's a long legacy of beneficence magic and sourcing power from, or chi life force from beneficence, beneficent acts, good acts, things like that, charity, generosity, and East Asian traditions. So that's one for me, um, sourcing power from good karma in a very sort of simplistic way to put it beneficence. And the second one is knowledge. Another way to think about knowledge, though, is it's um, ascended masters. It's um, gaining the collective power of experience. So even something as mundane as reading a book on a subject you don't know anything about, that is gaining the collective power of experience from a lot of the quote-unquote ascended masters, right? Even in a way, they are ascended masters, even philosophers of, of old. And so I think when you gain a lot of knowledge, that even in a way that feels indirect, it brings you the power that you need to do the thing that you do. So even in terms of magic and ceremony, ritual magic, I do believe book learning, quote unquote, book learning does beget practical applications. Amazing. Yeah, like I um, had wanted to ask you that because your body of work is so expansive and I encounter artists a lot who have so much to give or to offer, but they come up against these blocks or limitations. Um, whereas with you, it's like, I don't even know how you have the time <laughs> to create everything that you create. And so I felt like it was kind of an expression of power in that capacity to simply produce so much high quality, like occult material. I think anytime there is a worthy ambition that we have for ourselves, um, I don't know what, why or how, but it's some somehow like this weird universal spiritual law that there's going to be obstacles that are just thrown in your way that feel completely unfair, um, helpless, like you feel helpless against these obstacles. And when you start seeing that there's just these weird obstacles being thrown in your way that you can't even help you feel helpless against. It kind of is to me a hint that you're on the right track, that you're doing something right. And it's just this weird universal law, right? That anytime there's something worthy to worthy of doing, there will be roadblocks. And I think that's where you said power comes in. And so finding the power to drive, to bulldoze through those obstacles is incredibly, incredibly important in terms of um, goal, uh, goal achieving. 
Right. Like they're like initiations and that's a much different way of going about creative process than say like following the path of least resistance and flow, you know, like when you have this thing coming through you and there are going to be these obstacles along the way. I know. And you know, what's interesting though, like it is kind of a contradiction, right? There is that Taoist philosophical concept of, it sounds like taking the path of least resistance because the philosophy is, you know, to go with the flow. And there is you know, wisdom in that, right? Like there is wisdom and being able to accept the flow that you've received and just kind of going with that, going with the tides and finding a way to be satisfied with that. Um, and I, I completely value and respect that for me, it's, you know, I like to carve my own path and be happy that I set an intention and achieved it. Like that is my, my that's my personal spiritual path. And then I'm really grateful for your work with the I Ching too. Your translation has created a pathway for me to connect with the I Ching. It's been like a couple of years really that I wanted to connect, but didn't understand the books that I was reading about it. Whereas like with your, um, you know, spirit keepers tarot, you put two cards together and get a hexagram. So I often find myself asking questions and pulling like a two card spread to get those two cards and then a hexagram. So I've been slowly learning more of the hexagrams, integrating that with things like gene keys and human design. Um, and I love it. I've been having these, um, certain hexagrams that touched me really deeply, like 51, like shook me to my core and like still does. It's one that's connected to me with gene keys. So it's in that system, but I'm wondering, um, maybe to back up a little bit, if you could introduce the I Ching to us, I know that's a little bit broad, um, for listeners that may not know what that is. Uh, the I Ching it's, oh my gosh. So it's based entirely on mathematics for starters. And so if you think about it, most people accept as the universal I Ching, it is just the 64 hexagrams based on the eight trigrams. And it's based on permutations and how the order is done is a form of permutation as well. And then what you end up having is over um, you know, three or 4,000, yeah, 3,000 ish years, you have great philosophers and people that we've decided are authoritative figures um, assign or add text. And now those texts have become authoritative. And so we almost in effect use it now as a form of bibliomancy because we are relying on the source texts that um, um, have defined how the various or the 64 hexagrams are interpreted. And so it's considered a like a microcosm that represents all of the universal laws that our world is governed by. And so because we believe that the world runs in cycles, so if A happens necessarily B will happen next because of the cycle but it does also account for the forking path. So it's kind of hard to explain. So when we say if A, then B, we feel like it's linear, but it's not. The I Ching book is a cycle and it's very much about the spiral sequence of creation and destruction. And so in that sense, if you can pinpoint the location in the I Ching that mirrors your current life location, then you can look around, like kind of almost triangulate what's happening around you, past, present, and future in the I Ching, see that, and then find Find the metaphor in that in your own life and use that to forecast, predict, or also better understand what's happening in your current life. So it's a mirror of what's happening right now using these uh, sequences. And that's how it's been characterized as uh, divination. But also, if you think about it, it's also philosophy. But I did want to add very quickly about the hexagrams that we're talking about for you. You know, it's interesting that both of them are based, the base is thunder. 
And not only is the base. Oh, 27 too. Cause I, right. I yeah. 27 and 51 are both thunder. And in fact, 51 is thunder over thunder. It's actually a hexagram that is often used in thunder magic or thunder rites, which is an entire system of magic in the Taoist, in, in, in Taoist tradition. And not only that, but Funny enough, earlier you just randomly mentioned the tower card, which, you know, as you know, we often associate that with thunder. And when people start um, making metaphysical correspondences or, or divine correspondences to the thunder card, we almost always begin associating, associating the tower card with the various thunder gods of all the pantheons. And so this is just random how you mentioned Whoa, that. Oh, thanks but then for pointing that out. Synchronicity that went right through it. I mean, I'm living in Peru right now and there's thunder outside frequently at night. So now I have it in my environment. Um, but yeah, the way that, you know, you translated 51 and it, this, this image of a sage, like in a thunderstorm and everyone is, you know, brought to terror and the sage is ultimately whether or not experiencing that terror, like, cause the sage is meditating and, um, attempting to keep still that after the thunder comes some kind of ecstasy, mm-hmm. um, and one's life changes for the better. And I feel that I haven't really necessarily been able to escape this part of my personality or like patterning, but I do go through these shocking moments where then suddenly something beautiful comes of it afterwards. And so I'm always convinced and then also lucid while the shocking event is happening. Like it feels so real and then it makes way for the next thing. Um, So I've just been able to kind of get a better sense of that pattern in my life through that hexagram. And then when it shows up and it's happening, it's like that hexagram is right with me, like in my life in those moments. And I love those. I mean, even Carl Jung talked about how he was um, understanding his own theory of synchronicity better through his understanding and study of the I Ching. And just like the experiences you have, it just seems like this strange pattern that everybody has in tarot as well, you know, where it just seems like whatever cards you pull or the hexagrams that you cast really do mirror what's happening in your life. And like I said, you can triangulate almost in a, you know, three-dimensional way, what's happening past, present, and future with what's happening in the cards and also what's happening in the hexagrams and your own life. And so it does bring up these greater questions of what the heck is going on, right? I've had so many moments like asking the I Ching um, through the your cards specifically of things like, you know, I'm about to travel, but I have these physical injuries and I'm not sure if I can make it. And the I Ching is literally saying like, you feel weak. You don't feel like you can go on your journey, but ultimately you'll be victorious. <laughs> so it gives me faith, right? Or even the one about the, um, the innkeeper where there's like a fire at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that before I'm staying at an Airbnb in London. So I'm oh like, Ooh, God. this is kind of scary. But one morning I felt like there were bed bugs. Like I saw these little casings on the bed and I was freaking out. And I like kind of reactively texted the person that I was renting from, like there's bed bugs. And she was like, starting to react to. And she's like, no, there's not. And like, it was like this, like kind of explosive moment between us. And then it settled, but I was like, oh, that was the fire, the like bed bugs. Yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, I'm wondering like what hexagrams, if any, like you feel show up a lot for you or that you feel connected with. 
Um, so I guess two, which are funny ones. Um, I there have a, I have a bunch that I love, like the auspicious ones, right? The ones that you know you like to use in spellcrafting and such. But I think the one that's more personal to me would be um, I think it was Hexagram 19, Spring is Coming. It's the one where it's very comforting. I feel like for me, every time I feel desperately alone or isolated, or I don't know how to get out of a very dark situation, anytime I'm in, you know, the 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 what is that called the dark night of the soul right when that comes up it's just very comforting for me to say oh you know spring is coming after this winter that you're experiencing and so that is one that I really feel connected to because of the comfort that it brings and it always shows up when I absolutely need that comfort um another is more of a funny one hexagram four I don't know that's the one where you're like you're the fool it says like you're asking the wrong question you know basically it's the oracle giving you the middle finger it's that one <laughs> um I find that it's so true because every time I'm flippant or I'm kind of being a little bit irreverent and asking dumb questions for the heck of it I really do always get that hexagram I'm just like wow it just really it's so it's so strict with me it just kicks me in the pants every time I try to be irreverent with it I should try that maybe because I feel like I haven't come to the I Ching irreverently yet. Like I, I usually ask when I'm like pretty serious and want to know, but now oh, you're I'm a good person. Yeah, you should probably, that's, <laughs> that's probably the right thing to do. I mean, yeah, I feel like there's a gravity to it because once I get the Oracle, it's like, it's in my mind. I, I can't just, you know, sometimes I don't know how to interpret it and I have to slightly put it on a shelf and just wait and see, mm -hmm. but I never really pull cards or ask the each thing something and then be like, oh, never mind. It's like, it's going to enter my consciousness. So I feel like it, it's not joking around. My Asian friends have a lot of super, well, I do too. Like there's like a lot of fun sort of collective superstitions around the I Ching as well, where they do say like, it's kind of assigned a personality, right? Like people really do assign the Oracle of personality. And they'll say like, if you ask too many irreverent questions, it'll start giving you scrambled answers and stop answering back. You know, people, it's sort of a, you know, a superstition. And then you have to like go crawling to the Oracle and like beg for forgiveness and like apologize <laughs> and things like, you know, like it's just really funny how people really like give a personality to the book of changes. I feel that though, like the I Ching has like a definite character to it. That's different than other like divination systems I've encountered. And it really is true. You know how just like a mother um, is going to be a little bit different toward all three or four of um, the mother's child children, right? Like just because they're all your children, you're not exactly the same. You do kind of mother your child differently based on how you observe your child's personalities and each child's needs, right? And so in the same way, it's the same mother, the same sort of, you know, figure, the oracle, but you know, it really does seem to mother or nurture us each differently in accordance to our specific needs. It's really interesting how I can pick up on that. Mm, I love that. And to bring it back to um, your tarot deck, there were some cards particularly that I noticed that you take like a spin on the cards, traditional meaning, mm -hmm. um, like the eight of swords. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to hear more about that from you, like that. Oh, card. Uh, the eight. So Hmm, how, much, how much I want to talk about. So it is a lot of the cards, um, 
you know, it, I do want to keep it on that level where it is, you know, more objective and it's obviously, you know, a studied, a studied expression of what I believe that tarot card, that archetype is, is expressing, right? But then I think we are artists. And ultimately, I thought if I'm not going to be really specific and personal about it, what's the point, right? I mean, you can go get the RWS, the thought, like there's no need to get to spend all this money on my deck unless you kind of care about my, my experiences in my life, right? And even with the I Ching, I know I'm going to take a long time to explain this, but even with the I Ching, like if you read the specific stories, they're all very, very specific moments in history. Like you were talking about the innkeeper. That's a real story that happened during, I think, the Shang dynasty that got integrated into the Book of Changes. But obviously it's not referring to that. It's using that specific story to tell a metaphor. Anyway, so with that, the Eight of Swords, I think I was going through some stuff at the time where it kind of felt like, like it's not cancel culture, but you know how the media is, how we feel these days. I just kind of felt like, you know, instead of seeing myself as a victim, am I the perpetrator, you know? And so we all want to, when we see the eight of swords so often, you know, we look at the eight of swords and say that person who's blindfolded and who's completely surrounded by swords, that's me. I'm the victim in this situation. I'm the one who's being dealt with an unfair hand. And I wonder if it would be better to see yourself as the perpetrator. What did I do that caused people or caused the situation to come kind of backlash at me and put me in this situation? And that was just some of the things I was thinking about at the time. And it's like, oh, instead of thinking of myself as the as the as the victim, think of myself as a perpetrator. So I shifted the perspective, right? So it, you know, the Eight of Swords pictures Hypatia and the whole story of Hypatia, and we all. Identify, we think we identify with Hypatia's story. We're the enlightened one. We're the intellectual one that everyone's coming up against us because they're intimidated by our fearlessness. They're intimidated by our intelligence. Is that really true? Or are we the ones who are actually, as a collective society, especially now in this day and age, are we the ones who are going up against Hypatia? Are we, are the, are we the ones subjugating what Hypatia represents in today's world, which is intellectualism and enlightenment? That's kind of what I was trying to express on some, maybe this sort of subtextual sociopolitical level, what that card meant to me. Right. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, within that context, there is that victim persecutor dynamic that was like really heightened in the collective. And that card has like this harder edge to it with that perspective of like, maybe look at yourself, you know, cause it is easy to see oneself as a victim, but then to look at, well, where did I maybe perpetrate the situation? Um, yeah. And it's a profound, I think there's like an eclipse, like a red kind of like blood mm -hmm. moon looking yeah. eclipse behind Hypatia. It's like a very powerful image. Definitely. Um, were there other cards um, like that where you like created a spin on the traditional meaning? Um, I think for all of the courts I did, I think it's funny how, you know, traditionally courts are always hard. People always talk about how difficult the court cards are to, are to interpret. And I think it's because at the end of the day, they're about personalities, right? And so people are so, we're, we're hypocritical, we're contradictory. I think people are hard to pin down and we shouldn't be pinned down. I think it's very hard to pigeonhole people. We might have an innate personality, but we still react even against our own personality in different situations. Situations. So because people are so hard to pinpoint and pin down, I think it makes sense that court cards are hard to pigeonhole as well. And so I was trying to think about how did I want to approach the court cards, especially in this day and age as well. I think there are so many different ideas of social
social constructs that for a long time were baked into the court cards. And now in the 21st century, we're really becoming more fluid and challenging those social constructs. So in this century, how are you going to approach court cards? And so one of the things I did was in, because in a lot of um, older religious traditions, gender and gender and other aspects of social constructs have always been fluid. And so I wanted to play with that idea of various, um, you know, more like older religious traditions where gender has always been fluid. And I worked with that. But then when I did that, I started seeing the court cards in my deck. I use the word angel very like lazily and loosely. So it's not angels, but it's that idea of an ascended celestial or like a divine pantheon, a divine, like a heaven of some kind. And this heaven is populated by certain figures that do have the ability to come down and help us. And we are able to invoke them and get a little piece of that divine in us. And that's the source of power. So they became calling cards for power that we can invoke in order to get things done. So this kind of goes back to your earlier question about where do you harvest power from? So the court cards all as was it four times, is it 12? <laughs> I can't even do math right now, right? There's, <laughs> there's 12 court cards, right? Four times, no, 16, <laughs> 16 court cards. Oh my gosh, that's, that's embarrassing. So 16 court cards, right? So I thought of those as calling cards to invoke powers from the divine to help us do what we want to do. That's so cool to hear that because, um, yeah, some of the figures from the court cards in your deck are like coming to my mind. And I think about their aura and their energy, um, and just how they're still very mysterious to me. Like I pull them, but like, they're always still revealing new facets of themselves. So they are kind of like those people or those beings that you can't pigeonhole, mm -hmm. Um, in of themselves. I love that. Um, there was another card that's popping up in my mind from your deck, which is the, the grotesque or the five of cups. Oh, yeah. Um, uh -huh. I mean, it's beautiful. And that one, I feel, I mean, the imagery is so evocative in it. Um, and the way that you describe it, I think I also ended up connecting with that card deeply because of the decans and like an eclipse. And I was like working with that card for forecasting and just thinking about how we deal with disappointment and, um, that there's a line, you know, it's not a direct quote, cause I don't have it up right now, but something around how these circumstances that feel negative or feel disappointing are connected to a timeline that's beyond our register. Like there's something bigger at play. Not all is lost. It will be okay, essentially. And, um, when I connect with that card, you know, it is in that kind of spirit of disappointment, something feels like soiled or lost. And there's something very, um, validating about that card when it appears, but also has opened or been connected to meditations I've had lately about disappointment as a kind of portal, um, that disappointment isn't the end. It's not a place to shut down. Like there will be a renewal eventually. And I feel like that card has been part of my process in that. That card is also very, um, emotionally personal to me as well. I think that's another card I was deeply and emotionally connected to. And of course, the suit of cups emotions, right? But I think I put a lot of my own personal experiences and feelings toward myself as well in the in the five of cups, mm -hmm. that concept of disappointment that you were talking about. I think for a lot of my life, most people might be able to feel the same way. Uh, you know, when something when I'm disappointed, when something happens, right? Something, a five of cups moment, I, I always blame myself. 
I'm the one who's wrong. I do something. I feel grotesque. And that's the reason I use that word because it is such a powerful and difficult word to listen to, especially when used against you, like used against yourself. But that is how I felt. And then in the long, in the long game, right? At the end of it all, you always realize that when people, especially that cups, you know, it's social, right? Whenever you feel ostracized, when you feel like you're so different that you're grotesque or the thing that made you, you know, that brought on the disappointment because people didn't accept you for who you were. You weren't socially accepted. And then you blame yourself for not being, you know, acceptable. I think that grotesqueness in the long game, you realize it's actually your superpower. That's actually what makes you unique. And once you are able to realize that what you thought was grotesque is in fact that disappointment, that is in fact something that is going to bring you power. That's when like everything, that's where the paradigm shifts. And I think that's why I really love that card. It, it does talk about the long game. And I think you were asking about cards that kind of take a different turn on your traditional meaning that I think is one of them. Hmm. That's cool that that was like such a personal card for you as well, because it's one that I felt so strongly. Um, and I wanted to ask you going back to the part about the deck being insold. Um, you know, when I was thinking about that, I thought about how artists create things that go on to have a life of their own, um, inevitably, um, and hopefully, right. I think it's nice when something like gets carried in the wind like that and like is a, its own creation, um, but for you, it seemed like that was like your intention too, was that the cards would be insold. And I'm wondering kind of what that's been like interacting with the cards, you know, after you brought them into being. Um, yeah, it, I guess it does give you the feeling, um, rightfully or wrongfully as you kind of feel like a parent, Right. And so there is this weird dynamic of knowing you have to let go, right? That empty nets are feeling once they leave, they literally leave your house and you mail it out to people. It's that weird dynamic of you still feel ownership over it, right? Like, you know, you have that possessiveness and that bond. And so you think it needs to be done certain ways, but then at the same time, knowing well enough that that's absolutely the wrong way to think and having to let go, letting your children, like whenever you create something, you put out in the world, you have to find a way to reconcile that feeling and say, okay, this is now has a life of its own. This creation is independent. This creation has its own sentience, its own intentions, its own desires, you know, goals, everything. It's not me anymore. It's separate from me. It's no longer connected to me, even though I feel the connection and learning how to let it blossom in the world. It's a really, like, it's an experience that teaches you so much about yourself. Every artist, every parent will have that experience, has to have that experience. It's a necessary rite of passage. Hmm. Yeah, I relate in terms of like creating astrology forecasts where mm -hmm. I have my, you know, I show up to write them, but I can't be too attached to how people will perceive them or like what, you know, it will inspire in them. I do it prayerfully, but then how people respond or work with what I've created is also like beyond me. Um, mm -hmm. And that can't be micromanaged. Yeah, so. absolutely. And at some point you also do kind of you assure yourself it's meant to be, you know, like you, without knowing it, were creating something because there were some greater forces, some greater force guiding you to create something, not for you actually, but for somebody else, like you become a vessel or a vehicle to assist somebody else. So, you know, that's, at least that gives, gives us comfort, right? Right. And I imagine that energizes the creative process too, because it's, 
it's rooted and like sustained and resourced by a greater web than just our own personality or ego. I think artists are very much in tune to the fact that we live in a cosmic web. You know, you really do see it as an artist when you create something. There's almost an inevitability. If it's something you created out of true passion and sincerity, there's no way you don't feel personally invested in it. And when artists say, oh, it's okay, I can take negative criticism. It's never true. Or they've learned, <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like they've learned defense yeah. mechanisms or they built up defense walls in order to cope with the fact that it, they take it personally. Right. And so that's just a really interesting aspect to being an artist. Right. That's a funny way of putting it because it it's true. Like I can think of my own defense mechanisms for not taking in the critique and it is abundant too. Every time, if you are visible, if you put your work out into the world, um, eventually like some people will have a problem with it and we end up having to take that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There were, um, also in this deck, three different fools, mm-hmm. uh, like the fool archetype got divided in three. So I was curious what your inspiration was with that. And what are these three different fools? Well, it's a play on the Holy Trinity because the Holy Trinity, the three in one, one is three, like that concept. It's weird how it's in so many different mm-hmm. traditions from every part of the world. You know, you can see it on every continent from every one of the cradles of civilizations. Every cradle of civilization has this concept of three is one, one is three. And so I wanted to play with that idea in um, key zero. And so it was the initiate, the, what was it? The initiate, the keeper is the last one. And then Oh, the seeker. Oh Oh my gosh. The the initiate, the seeker and the keeper. And so working with that concept of three stages, three ideas and the three faces of one. And and also because at the time I, it was very practical too. So um, if you, if you um, print a 78 card deck versus an 80 card deck, it costs the same. So like the Asian in me that wants to get a good deal was like, well, I get two cards for free. So why would I not utilize that? Right. Right. Like I'm just going to make 80 cards instead of 78. It's just not happening. I'm not going to take 78 when I paid for 80. Yeah. It's interesting. Like the, uh, like, it's not even necessarily just probability of like, Oh, I'll probably pull the full more, you know, it's like, it's still something else, not just sheer probability around how the cards show up because there was definitely, I think it was one, either the keeper, maybe it was the keeper where I was looking through the deck and I was like, I've never pulled this one before. And I was like, I think I pulled every other card, you know? And so, um, yeah, I kind of, you know, noticed too, that in your text, like there's different spreads you can do by pulling the different fools as significators. So I was like, I need to look into that more. And like, like there's definitely like a whole, choose your own adventure universe that's happening in your guidebook too. So one of the things I decided to do with uh, three key zeros is literally treat them like keys or figuratively um, as keys, right? So the idea is if you want to unlock different dimensions or different layers, stratospheres of the deck, you use different key zeros. I actually work with the full 80 card deck. So all the three key zeros are in my deck when I, when I read with it. And funny enough, just like what you said, your experiences, it's not like, even though the probability is that I should pull more full cards because now there's three in a single deck. I I really don't. And when they do come up, they come up in a very intentional way, saying something very specific. So it is interesting that that it it kind of d- went against what we would believe would happen due to probability. Right. 
Yeah. I've, that's so cool. Like whenever I shuffle, I also like feel into different body sensations or I'll like get chills in my spine or just like feel different activations. And that's kind of how I decide where to cut the deck or when to stop shuffling. Same, so there's something same. else going. Yeah. How is it for you? Um, for me, it's like a tingle in the back here. Like you just kind of like, it's like a tap and you know, oh, okay. Okay. Now I'm done here. Or I just feel a little tap in the back, like the nape of the lower nape of your neck. Um, sometimes it's like the spine tingling as well. Um, and so I think people talk about that in the ASMR community, the spine tingling. So it's a very similar sensation without the ASMR part where I'm just, while I'm doing the work, I do feel that tingle and it gives me a sensation of um, someone tapping you on the shoulder saying, Hey, okay, pay attention now. So that's how I experience it. Well, I just want to echo back to, I haven't mentioned it here, but you have a book about the tarot, like about like the writer weight or the traditional interpretations, mm-hmm. um, I forget what it's called. I have it at home back in Holistic Tarot. Yeah. Um, That was a book that I worked with when I was first starting to learn the meanings of the cards where, you know, you could name a card and I'm like, I have no idea what that one is. And I'm just trying to get the vocabulary down. Um, But I also had powerful experiences with that. And um, also like still that thunder energy. It was like the 10 of cups, the way you Mm -hmm. described it in the, um, in that book, basically at that time, I would pull three cards at the end of the day, um, asking the tarot for support, integrating the day and also learning the tarot. So like, give me a mirror of the day so that I can, you know, so it was this interesting, like retrospective, like nighttime activity. Um, but I pulled a spread and I, I really forget what the three cards were besides the 10 of cups being present, but that night, before I pulled it, I had been to a party and I was having a conversation on the deck, um, or the balcony. And I was talking with this man about how love eventually appears, you know, that you, you simply can make yourself ready for it. And then, you know, when it strikes you. And there was something about the conversation that was so revelatory, so electric to me that I felt like it must have been thundering outside, but it wasn't. That was my internal, you know, little did I know the 10 of cups is connected to the tower in terms of numerology and whatnot. Um, But that was like something that I was really like, had such a deep yearning of like, I want that, you know, one, the love, the relationship. And it was like an ache how much I wanted it. And when I pulled the 10 of cups that night, it was just this profound, like faith renewing, like it's a promise from God, it will happen. It's okay. Um, And it struck me so, so deeply. Um, And so that was just kind of like a, a casual moment to start out with in terms of asking the tarot and like working with the writer weight and your interpretations, you know, help me reflect my day. But then it opened up this huge portal where it's like, I'll remember that day forever. It was like a very significant. So there was something too about how the tarot really um, kind of heightens daily life or like offers just this, you know, these keys and these portals into being more connected and having these like awakening experiences. Um, I like how the tarot is almost like a barometer, right? It's a way of measuring the metaphysical temperature. And so it kind of gauges the power. It gauges your own personal power back to that issue of power again. So you had talked about how, when you were having that conversation, it was kind of like a lightning struck. It was an epiphany of some kind. I know people overuse the word epiphany, but there was this moment of a, of a, of a shift of some kind, right? There was a jolt. And then the card itself reflects that jolt 
you know, so it becomes this, like you said, it's a mirror that, that integrates everything that happened in the day, but it basically is an affirmation that you had experienced some kind of a, like, like you, you sort of realization of your own power of some kind. And then you see that in the cards and that gives you a way also to start thinking about what are you going to do with that power? What are you going to do with that realization? And so that's what I love about the tarot as well. It's philosophical as well as definitory. Hmm. I really love getting your interpretation on that moment. That feels really like special to receive. Um, and then I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but then this other card appeared from your deck, which is the seven of um, pentacles, the gardener. Mm-hmm. And that card was interesting um, because it's, um, oh, okay. Do you want to speak to it for a moment before I? Oh no, it's about um I forgot what it's called what 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 it's called the word some kind of agriculture but basically it's the idea of um where you don't it's not commercial agriculture it's just farming for yourself farming for your the sustenance of a smaller level of community and so it, that was and it kind of brought in a lot of different Tibetan cultural aspects the hair braiding and um the rite of passage of hair braiding and where that person depicted on the card was um it's this sense of you know kind of um, there's no, you don't, you can't find a reason to be unhappy, but you're, you're still unhappy. And it's that feeling of, I don't know why I'm unhappy, but I am. And so how am I going to work through this? So that was sort of the, what right. I was trying to express in that card. And it's connected to, is it Saturn and Taurus? Yeah. I remember it was Taurus. I can't remember off it, but yeah, it might be just like, I think Mars and Pisces with the 10, with the 10 of cups. So it's funny how you always yeah. go back to that thunder energy. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so that card, um, and specifically, you know, I work with spirit keepers tarot more than any other tarot deck. So usually when I have readings, like those are the images that are in my mind, but I pulled that card an inordinate amount. Like it kept showing up and I was like, I really don't understand what it's trying to tell me. Um, until a moment came finally where it was, I finally had the download of like where I had untapped, resources or like where I was kind of like just letting something sit and that that was a source of unhappiness because there was a stagnancy. Um, and so it was really interesting how that card kept knocking at my door and I like, wasn't getting it. And so it kept showing up. Um, but then it also helped me in a a spread to make a decision where it showed up and it was telling me like, you'll feel like you weren't really like working with what life is giving you. If you say no to this opportunity, um, So it's just been really cool to feel the way that this deck has weaved, you know, it's not just in the moments that I read it, but it will show up and pop up in my mind as I'm living and like the message is coming through. The narrative of the um, the female the the woman depicted in that card. How what I was thinking of the story of her when I was um, drawing that, I was seeing her as somebody who was like not like almost like big fish, small pond sort of vibe where she was, she reached the limits of what she can do or her influence in her little area. And she's no longer happy with what she's like. She wants to be able to apply her abilities and whatever she thinks she has, she needs to be able to apply it in a much broader, bigger way. And where she is at that exact moment, she can't, she can't apply it in a bigger way where she is. She has to go somewhere bigger. And so in the narrative of that, that person that's depicted, she's about to leave her hometown. You know, she's about to leave where she is and go somewhere that's really scary and different, somewhere unfamiliar so that she can finally be the small fish in the big pond. Right. And so she's about to go somewhere so that she can 
actually utilize her full potential of gifts to show more people to, to have a bigger audience and then a bigger platform than the one that she had before. That was the story of her. Wow. That clicks a lot for me. I'm like those readings too. That's so cool. Um, so the spirit keepers tarot, it's printed in batches basically, right? Mm-hmm. Like how does that work? Um, we do print runs mainly because, uh, I, you know, I have a full day, full, full day job. And so I can't get it. I can't be in the full-time business of doing tarot decks. So what I do is I do the pre-orders and then I, um, order the decks based on the pre-order and then just batch send it out. So I'm only busy kind of like crabbing season, right? Like I'm only busy for two or three months and then everything gets sent out and then it's done. It's like one and done. If you just sell decks, you know, continually, it just, you know, you get one, one order here, five orders there it's just the constant right so this right. was just a solution that I had for myself so that it would fit my lifestyle so that I can kind of get the orders in and then send them out and not have to worry about it throughout the year but yeah I do okay. print runs because when I ordered it for the first time I didn't know if there would be future print runs I guess I didn't like ask either but I cherish this deck so much. And because I wasn't sure if it would be printed again, um, I don't tend to lose things. I'm pretty good with my like physical possessions, but when I travel, I always carry it in my carry on. I would not dare check it. It's just like such a little, I can't, yeah, part from it. I'm very, it's a prized possession. (laughs) <laughs> what I do love about um, the the feedback I've been getting from the from other people about the deck, the Spirit Keepers Hero, and also my own experiences with, because obviously since I'm the creator, I've, I have a hundred, I have so many copies that are just my own personal working copies, right? Um, one of the things that a lot of people have said, and this has been my testimony as well, is that each specific copy of the deck seems to have like its own personality or it's like own sentience. And so even if you have two, they still feel too, like, you know what I mean? like even if I have three decks if I lost one I would still feel really whole like there's just something to it like there's that's a to it yeah. so that's kind of a weird thing about this deck that I feel like has happened to it I think it challenged this like unconscious consumerist mentality I had where it's like oh if I lose the deck I'll just buy another one to replace it it's like no like this is really special I would be devastated if I lost oh, this I'm so glad <laughs> I'm so glad And so there's another print run coming, right? Like when is that? And what are the changes that are happening with this deck? Uh, It's a different card. So the first edition, that black and white one, and then there was a sepia tone of Vitruvian. Those are limited editions. So they're never coming back. I think both of them, one of them was a thousand copy run. The other one was a 2000 or something like that. But um, yeah, so those are one and done. I'm never reprinting them. With the third one, the full color one, I did say it was going to be an open edition, but there will be limited print runs. So there'll be set, you know, face print runs, like you had said. And so uh, this second one, the card back design is different. Um, some of the cards I tweaked a little bit, but they're not material changes. And the reason I decided not to make material changes, even though there were a couple of cards I really wanted to totally redo, but I held myself back and didn't because I didn't want to feed into the consumerist culture. So I felt like if you have that first print run and you're really happy with it and like you've got this thing going, I didn't want to quote unquote tempt people to try to buy a second print run. So if you buy a second print run, it's for fully independent reasons and not that like, you know, FOMO sort of situation. That's why I try to keep it as similar as possible, but there are slight differences. So you definitely know the difference between the first print and the second print run. Oh, I have ordered some as gifts this time. Yeah, there's something about how the next run has like different um, 
I forget eight orders. What, yeah, the eight orders. Um, and I loved reading about that. That was just a little fun thing that I wanted to do. And it's based on the eight trigrams and sort of the archetypes that I have for the eight trigrams of the I Ching, which is the foundation of the I Ching. Um, and I was just thinking about, well, what are the sort of the immortal? So there's eight immortals in Chinese mythology. And of course, you know, eight trigrams, eight immortals, obviously the culture is going to associate one of each of those eight immortals, to the eight trigrams. If it, if, if it wasn't born altogether, we don't know. But so there's that association. So I decided to work with that idea of the eight immortals their powers, their gifts, their talents, and then brought that into the um, eight different orders and decided to sort every single deck in the second print run into one of the eight orders. So even though they all effectively do the same thing, tarot is tarot is tarot, but like the deck that you get based on the order is brought to you for very specific reasons so that you will fully activate particular gifts that the deck is endowed with. So the deck is endowed with certain gifts because ultimately those are the gifts that you're supposed to become, that you're supposed to invoke for yourself. That's so cool. Um, and then you also have a work, um, a new book coming out about the I Ching, right? Eating mm-hmm. the Oracle. It's published by North Atlantic Books and it's coming out June of 2023. Exciting. Um, and then how can people, listeners, find you and connect with your work? And do you have any other forthcoming offers that you'd like to share with us? Just well, if you if you're interested in the I Ching, then I Ching the Oracle. Please help pre-order. That's always useful for um uh, for authors when you pre-order their books. It helps their relationship with their publishing houses. Um, benabelwen.com is usually where I download all my stuff and put all my stuff there. It's kind of a hot mess. It's like an attic. You know, everything is like there's really no organization. There's kind of an organization in the menu, but not really. Don't rely on the categorization system in the menu. But yeah, so that's sort of where I like to sort of brain dump all the stuff that I want to um, share with people. Um, my day-to-day, my Instagram at bellwin.com. No, not at, at bellwin. That's just where I like to post food pictures and really random, <laughs> uninteresting stuff. But if you're into uninteresting personal stuff, that's where you'll find it, my Instagram. Oh, I love it. And how, um, when can people pre-order the Spirit Keepers Tarot next run? Until- oh, right now. So um, actually this, this is the run that we're going to do. And then I think we're going to stop for a while because I'm just exhausted. I did, um, you know, I did the first print run in 2020 to 2021. And then um, this one is 2022, but I think this one will be sort of the last for a while um, just because of my my schedule and what's happening in my life. So if you really want the Spirit Keepers Tarot Revelation Edition, do get in on this current print run because it might not appear for at least a couple of years. Wow. Okay. Well, I will definitely recommend everyone who's listening to get this deck. It is um, unbelievable. Like it's so profound and so Thank deep you. and so multifaceted. And right now I have like a few friends that also have it. And we're just like, so excited that we can talk to each other about it because we have this whole experience with the deck. And so I also, for selfish reasons, would love more people to know about this deck so we can talk about it. Um, but it's also just been such a, such a friend and a companion and a guide in my life. And I'm so excited that I got to talk with you about it. I'm so glad because that was exactly my intention for the deck, that it would be basically like an emotional support animal. <laughs> like it's supposed to be <laughs> an emotional support divinity. How's that? It's a little bit better, <laughs> but like it's, it's supposed to, it supports whatever you want. It's your cheerleader. It's not, you know what I mean? And that's really what I wanted for the deck, that it will amplify you. That was very important in terms of my priorities. 
Oh, well, it definitely does that. And thank you so much for joining me to talk, Benabelle. Oh, it was my pleasure. We had a great conversation. We did. Thank you. 